Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Today, I have Chalcedon President Mark Rushduni, and we're going to have a discussion, and I'm going to preface everything we say in terms of it's a discussion. Oftentimes, people like to come across authoritatively, you must do this, you must do that on certain circumstances. But sometimes I think it's valuable to examine things that might be a little tougher than a two-minute answer or always a black and white remedy. And so today's question is, Is it a biblical concept to talk about being between a rock and a hard place? And oftentimes that expression is used to say there's no good answer. There's no way to proceed. You're basically choosing the lesser of two unpleasant things. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Andrea. Good to be with you. What do you think about the concept of being between a rock and a hard place? Well, there are different ways you can look at that, but if you uh, look at it in terms of uh, the fact that we live in a fallen world and that we are fallen and every person we deal with is fallen, we're going to have problems in this world. And it's obvious that all problems stem from sin, including our own sin. So we're always going to be in a situation that is plagued with uh, sin and the effects of the fall on our life. Okay, so we're theonomic in that we believe that God's law speaks to every area of life and thought. And some people will talk about the milk of the word and the meat of the word. And I submit that as we're in the situations that feel very much like being between a rock and a hard place is when we have the opportunity to examine biblical law and see what is a righteous course of action. So would you submit that there's always going to be a right course of action for someone who finds himself in that situation? I think so, but we don't always know what that is, and so we make mistakes. We sometimes misjudge what we should or should not be doing. Uh, Do you stay and fight, or do you get out? What is your proper response? And that's not always an easy question to answer. And therefore, again, because we live in a world of sin, we live in a very, very imperfect world, and our decisions sometimes I'm talking about strategic, not moral decisions, but our strategic decisions about our life and what's most productive for our kingdom work will not always be easy ones. So at a time when we like to be validated in our decisions, how many Facebook likes do we get? Or even if we posited being in front of a jury and having 12 people decide if we were right or wrong. Would you say that these decisions that we have to make really need to start in a personal way? In other words, we don't look for group approval. We might go for counsel, but our real approval, our real audience is the triune God. 
Right. We're accountable to, to God ultimately. And you mentioned being before a jury. That wouldn't be an easy situation. But if you are bef- before a jury and there's a possibility that you might be unjustly convicted, then you have to live with that if you, in fact, have done what you believe to be the moral course of action. So we judge our behavior, our ethics in terms of what we believe God expects of us, and we accept the consequences. And the Bible is full of people who live through the consequences of doing the the righteous thing. And some live through the consequences of doing the unrighteous thing. So I guess it's safe to say every action will bring about consequences. Sure. And therefore, our, it, it really behooves us to make sure that our suffering is for righteousness, snake, and not as the consequences of our own foolishness. Because the Bible talks a lot about the, the ways of a fool. And it's not too hard for us to come up with theoretical or actual examples of people living through the consequences of their, their own actions. I like to look back on our forebears in the faith. And there are a number of situations that sort of scream out. When Abraham was told that from his descendants would come the Messiah, and then he's told to go sacrifice his only son, the child of promise, I would say most people would say, what do I do here? Where am I? Am I hearing this right? And I doubt sincerely that Abraham had a consult with people to ask the question, should I do this or not? He had to walk in faith. And um, the same could be said for Daniel. The same could be said for the three young men who end up in the furnace. I'm sure there's lots of people throughout biblical history and history in general that are quick to tell people, this is what you should do. But that's not the way God's word tells us to proceed, is it? No, we have to to do what to do what we think is right, and we can do that in a in a prayerful way. But but the fact is that uh, we have to be convinced that this is the right thing to do. You mentioned Abraham. Abraham also did something, and probably what he thought was an act of faith. And uh, he had a child with with Hagar. He assumed that uh, he hadn't had a child, therefore he had to take the initiative. And so he had Ishmael, and the descendants of Ishmael were no small problem to the Hebrews thereafter. So we have to make decisions, and sometimes we make missteps along the way. So I was thinking as I was preparing for our discussion, let's take a surgeon. A surgeon goes through years of training, then he's apprenticed under someone else, And oftentimes in the midst of a surgery, he may have to make a decision on a situation he hadn't seen before, but he draws on his instruction he's had in his experience. And it seems to me that, well, not all of us are ever going to be surgeons necessarily, but we can all be good students of God's word. And one of the things we should be teaching ourselves and our children is how to manipulate, and I don't mean being self-serving, but how to be able to ascertain which law applies when, and do I have options, or is it clear-cut? 
Right. And I think this is where theonomy comes in, the idea that, that God has spoken, and therefore we have to understand what God's law says. When I was teaching, I often told my students, junior high age mostly, 12, 13 years old, that the most important moral decisions that they would make in life, they should be determining their answer then and there, that there'll come a time when they're tempted to do certain things, whether it's fornication or drug use, whether it's any kind of of evil, they had to make a decision ahead of time. They couldn't wait for circumstances to put them under pressure to do the wrong thing. And therefore, uh, our moral decisions have to be guided by our, a determined course of action on our part. Therefore, we learn the precepts of God. We learn what God says. This is the way, walk ye in it. Therefore, when we have that problem or that situation arise, we've already made a moral decision in general that can guide us in the specifics. So learning the what God's word says is very, very important. It cannot be a, an addendum to our life. And I'm thinking back on something your dad said about the book of Proverbs, that the book of Proverbs is a blueprint, so to speak, on the application of the law. And I remember when I was homeschooling my children, we would individually at different stages, not having in a group discussion, but as I was dealing with each of them, go through the book of Proverbs and talk about stuff like beware of the adulterous woman or ill-gotten gain. And especially when I was talking about things like relationships, when they were young, they were like, ooh, who would ever want to do that? And I'll say, trust me, there will be a time where you will be interested in girls to my son, or you will be interested in boys to my daughters, but you have to make these decisions ahead of time. And some people criticize that and say, well, you're putting thoughts into their head. See, if you hadn't brought it up, they wouldn't go there. What do you say to that? Well, you know, the heart of man is fully capable of going all kinds of places it, it ought not to. So I think that is nonsense. It, it kind of uh, assumes that the child is basically good, and if they're just not exposed to something, they won't be tempted. It, it, it's a very faulty view of man's nature. I, I think rather we ought to prepare young people for a host of evil situations that they might encounter because in, in difficult times and in, in, in times where people are self-consciously rebelling against God and against, and, and there's tremendous pushback against Christian influence, such as we live in, I think we're going to see more and more people confronted with these uh, decisions. And therefore they have to be well-grounded or they're going to just melt like butter in the sun. But what you're talking about is not what has been termed situational ethics, is it? No, it's, it's, it's application of the ethics that we're taught in God's word because situations vary. And we always think the circumstances around a given temptation are prominent and it's easy to, to overlook the choice involved, the, the, the ethics involved, because we're so consumed about the, the, what we might 
consider the, 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 the necessities of the circumstance and the situation. So every decision will have a consequence. And I've talked to many, many people who are faced with either you get an injection or you lose your job. Either you get an injection or you can't go on an airplane. And oftentimes, and maybe it's because in America, this generation hasn't really experienced hardship. A lot of times people want to dismiss an option because it will bring about suffering as if that would automatically disqualify that option. That's not the sort of world we live in. I I think uh, Americans have been spoiled by a life of ease and a life of plenty, even though that some of that plenty is, is, has been artificially induced by uh, the creation of, of a currency, which is another issue altogether but I'm a baby boomer, and certainly the post-war growth, it, it's easy to, to look at that economic bubble created by currency creation and think of this is, the, this is the norm, this is prosperity, this is the good life, because we have so much, and we don't really look at the heart. That's why people who sometimes are seen as pessimists about the future are sometimes belittled. But really, we should be pessimists about man and man's propensity to self-destruct. We should be optimists about God and God's promises that he gives us in his word. And part of the conditions of his promises are, have you obey me? So, Therefore, even when the wicked seem to be flourishing and we have good times, we still have to focus on God's ethics and where, where are man's actions leading. And I think we're, we're, life has changed tremendously in our lifetime, certainly. I think people are becoming more and more aware of the fact that we live in a chaotic world. And my father always talked about we live at the end of the age because so much of humanism is failing right now and he said it's going to get ugly before it breathes its last gasp and i i think we're seeing that i think we saw that in the 1960s and the when people were self-consciously throwing off their christian traditions which then were largely tradition and i think we're seeing it again today and people just think this is somehow this nonsense has come out of the blue, but it's it's part of man's self-destructiveness. So it's it's the world in which we live, and it's the context in which we have to further the kingdom of God. But isn't it true? It's the world everybody's had to live in. If you lived in, you know, the first millennium, you had to face difficulties and changes of circumstances. Do you think part of what's had um, the West? since post-World War II has been fantasy depictions in novels and media that make people think we are the greatest generation, the wisest group of people? Well, a lot of it is, uh, it's been promoted in any number of ways, and certainly the fantasy that has been promoted by, you know, the media of various kinds, including entertainment media, is part of it. And uh, a lot of our generation thought, 
you know, the things could go on forever. A, a, a song that even predates me, I think it goes back to the depression or world war two is good times are here again. Oh, happy days are here again. Happy, day, happy days are here again. And that even became a title, the sitcom happy days half a century ago, but it's easy for people to grasp the good life when, when it's offered to them and when it seems to be available and to think that there is substance in, in things in which there's no substance. The expression goes that hindsight is twenty twenty, and there's a prevailing attitude that we can judge all those people of the past by standards that we have because we have the ability to study these circumstances. We have the ability to see things that a lot of these people could not have seen. So do you think there's value in going back and reviewing bad decisions and good decisions of our forebears, but with a humility that says, we know a lot of the circumstances, or we think we know a lot of the circumstances that they were making their decisions on, but maybe they didn't have as much information as we do. Yeah, it's easy to, to uh, it's, you know, it's called uh, Monday morning quarterbacking. And my father talked a lot uh, about that. He referred to that kind of uh, behavior. And it's been going on for a long time as judging the sins of the past or even confessing the sins of the past or confessing our parents' sins. And that's what's going on. And it's it's an easy w- way to exhibit a, a terrible self-righteousness. And that's really what I see in a lot of this condemnation of the past. It's a terrible self-righteousness. It's as if it only wasn't for the problems of these people and the evils of these people and what they did, we would have a much better world. And yet, there's only so much that one person can do. For instance, slavery. Slavery was is not an easy institution to eliminate, but Christianity over the course of centuries did slowly eliminate slavery, and it wasn't easy. Otto Scott, by the way, always said something that, that uh, I found uh, very thought-provoking and, and very important. Uh, Otto Scott was an historian that uh, was a staff writer for Calcedon for a number of years, He said that slavery was eliminated everywhere in Western civilization with the stroke of a pen, except in the United States. And we killed over 600,000 men to do it. And we feel very self-righteous about that. There are people today who said that wasn't enough and it wasn't soon enough. It should have happened sooner. And, And they will condemn the past. And yet look at the great evils of our day and how can one person impact the great evils of our day? It's very, very difficult. And we live in a world of, of sin and evil and we can't fix everything. You know, in the, I believe it's in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a few comments that are widely quoted about, you know, not resisting evil. He said, resist not evil, which can, that word evil can be, can refer to, to toil. In other words, it ref, and it was probably a reference to, to Roman slavery. 
and the evils of it, because most of the Jews were not citizens. They were essentially a lower echelon of, of people, and they were easily subject to abuse by Roman authorities. You couldn't talk back to a Roman soldier. And it says, resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. In other words, Jesus was saying, you live where there's injustice. You can't solve that injustice by resisting it. He was in effect saying, you're slaves to the Romans at this point in history. But a slave revolt isn't going to do you any good. It will likely end you in prison or worse. A slave revolt and uh, opposing evil in a, in a reckless manner is inviting trouble on yourself and then expecting God to bail you out. Like Jesus being told, cast yourself down from the, t- from the, the temple, force God to do something miraculous to save you, make God prove that he cares for you. And we can't have that kind of a reckless attitude. We live in a world of sin. Sometimes we, we, we don't, aren't, Accepting sin, if we acknowledge that we live in a world in sin and we can't stop all of it. Jesus, in that same passage, he says, if anyone sues you at law and takes your a coat, give him your cloak also. In other words, even in the courts, the Roman courts, there was no justice in the Roman courts. Even if you got to a Roman court, they were living in an unjust area and the people treated them and they were influential. If they were the powers that be, you weren't going to challenge them no matter what kind of a case you have. And Jesus said, uh, don't expect justice in those courts. You're not going to get it. And I've counseled people who knew they were right because they had they, they were doing the, the godly thing. And so they were going to go to court. They were going to fight something in court. Their uh, spouse was particularly evil, and they were going to fight for full custody. And I said, the the court system is not about biblical justice and you can't go in there expecting biblical justice. There are laws that they are going to enforce and chances are they're going to, in the case of a divorce, they're probably going to grant 50, 50 custody or some variant of that, but you can't go in there and expect biblical justice because you're in the moral right. And I just warn them, against that. It's just, it's not going to happen. And you can fight that and go spend a lot of money on attorneys and a lot of energies, and you're only going to end up disappointed. And that's really was, was Jesus' point. You live in amongst evil, come to expect it. And if you decide all by yourself, you're going to fight that evil, it's only going to come back to hit you harder. And, and in that same passage, he said, if someone compels you to go a mile, go two. That was probably talking about forced conscription. You have oxen and a wagon. You're going to transport our goods from here to there. And Jesus was saying, don't resist because you'll lose your heart. You'll lose your wagon and you might lose a a lot more. See, Jesus was speaking to people who were very proud. They hated the Romans. They wanted to throw off Roman tyranny. And they tried that. A generation after the crucifixion, they tried that and it ended up in the Jewish war and it ended up in the destruction of the nation, destruction of Jerusalem and, and the temple. It was suicidal course. They were trying, they decided what justice was and that they were going to institute 
a perfect justice because they deserved perfect justice. We don't necessarily live in that kind of a world, and, and we can't demand that God gives us perfect justice by doing something which is foolhardy. And resisting the Romans was largely a foolhardy course of action. But you're not saying, I know you're not saying, that you don't work towards having a more just court system. I think what you're saying is we all have to accept the reality that humanistic law, status law, is not going to change people. And the fact that you might be enslaved, the fact that you don't like it doesn't change your circumstance because you don't like it. But that if you understand that, for example, tithing will eventually make it so that people don't depend on statist money and you can then address that. In other words, we've got to be busy about doing those things that we're supposed to do rather than place all our efforts on something that is like a system that's made up of a lot of people who haven't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. No, and, and, and one of the advantages of our Christian capital is that we do have the ability to resist by methods that might bear some fruit, even if, if we don't get perfect uh, justice. Aside from the courts, an example of that is reforming the public school movement in the 50s and 60s was very problematic. And the pioneers of Christian education, such as my father, saw that. And so the alternative to that was not trying to fix the public schools. And some people still think that that's feasible. It was to educate our children by an alternate means. So sometimes the best means of avoiding evil is to create alternatives to the evil. And we need, and that's a a lot of the emphasis on Christian reconstruction is about doing what we can, but not in a foolhardy way, not fixing a corrupt system. So yes, we must fight. We have the ability, even in in the the political arena, to to fight back, to resist. And I think that's good. It's not going to be the means. Politics isn't going to be the means of of, uh, bringing in the kingdom. But defensively, it can be a good means of getting rid of some some bad eggs that are harming us and are harming our social order. So yeah, we fight. And we have that ability in America and in the West as a whole, more than any other people in history. It's doing self-destructive, non-productive things that are not going to help, but are sometimes self-satisfying. For instance, if we think that there's injustice in the you know, police, is being hostile to all police is non-productive. Yes, there may be some injustices there amongst some police, but resisting the whole thing and being hostile, uh, there are YouTube videos of people being absolute jerks when the police stop them for innocuous purposes. Even in terms of the whole abortion debate, oftentimes people are very overly concerned about making abortion illegal. But, of course, making abortion illegal doesn't necessarily change the murderous hearts of people who want to kill their children. And uh, I think a more 
forward thinking approach. Not that I think that the work that people do in pregnancy centers or legislation are for naught, but the real effort of most Christians should be making abortion unthinkable as opposed to illegal because the laws will follow the hearts of the people. And you talked about our Christian capital. We have the benefit of looking back on Christendom and knowing what the world looked like prior to the advent of Jesus Christ and then the application of the gospel to see that a lot of unthinkable things were eradicated. And it's when people give up the law word of God that a lot of those things return. Yeah, absolutely. We are, there's still a lot of Christian capital left, if not in the people, at least in our system. Almost none of that was available in the ancient world. What the emperor was worshipped as a god, and what the Romans said represented the emperor, and therefore you couldn't resist. There was little justice. A good example is Paul. He appealed that he was a Roman citizen, and he had rights. They recognized that, but even as a Roman citizen, he was thrown into jail for two years before any movement took place. And then he, he had to, ended up having to go to Rome to make his case. We have things much, much better now. And, and that's part of the Christian capital. And, and hopefully we can reclaim some of that ground. But if none of that will happen until people change. And I right. think we live in a, in a, a time of uncertainty, but you can be optimistic about the, what's happening today because unlike 40, 50, 70 years ago, the world of humanism is facing one set of failures after another. And it appears as though things are coming to a head. How long it's going to take for that system to be completely bankrupt, I don't know. But people have a different attitude towards government. They're very cynical towards government and its promises. And it's getting harder for, govern, uh, for governments to, to make good on those, those rosy promises they made. Back in the, the 50s and 60s, people trusted their government. And they figured the government's going to figure all this out. And we're going to have a bright future because... We're voting in this program and that program, and we're spending money here and there. Uh, the good times are rolling, and uh, people don't believe that anymore. And so as governments fail in one area after another, as institutions, public and private, fail in one area after another, there's room there for something else. So we live in a very in, – in a, our culture is very much in flux, and the stage is being set for something. And we can only pray that the Holy Spirit is going to move men and there's going to be a revival. But I think things things are going to change. How they change, we don't know. But I think there's a potential for a real change. And, and I hope that change is, is going to include a real revival and people tor- self-consciously turning away from humanism to a, a Christian perspective. I like the fact that you brought up Paul. Paul went for his exemption. He he claimed his right as a Roman citizen, and yet he was on the wrong side of true justice. They imprisoned him, and then eventually 
they chopped his head off. So you could say, well, what, what good did it do that he followed all those steps? But if you take a look at the time of Paul's imprisonment, that's when we get, you know, major portions of the New Testament. And so in the midst of persecution, the people of God can be very, very fruitful. And so long as our judgment isn't, it has to be all good so I can see it, we can be part of what happens. I'm sure it would be easy to say, Paul did nothing of value. Look, they killed him anyway. But we've got the benefit of centuries to look back and say, oh, no, he was quite productive in the midst of persecution. Right. And you're right. Paul's, Paul's exemption basically got him protection from being handed over to the religious leaders in Jerusalem who intended to kill him. That's very clear from, from the book of Acts. And it, it did set the stage for something extremely important in the writing of those uh, epistles that occurred during that period has been probably far more productive than anything else that Paul could have done. In fact, the mere fact that Paul was imprisoned meant he had the time to sit down and write letters. That might have been more productive than Paul exhausting himself by trying to travel extensively. Although he had an exhausting travel schedule from uh, having to run away from people and being shipwrecked. So I think when we read through scripture, we need to read it with the like, what would have been like if I was there? You know, it's, it's very easy to take the whole thing and just spiritualize it. You know, we're coming up on Christmas. What was it like for Mary and Joseph for people to assume that they had done things that were outside the bounds of the law? And that's why she was pregnant. You know, sometimes we don't know the full story and it behooves us not to judge where we're not the judges. Right. It's for all we know, those rumors would have followed them back to uh, Nazareth and would have followed Mary for the rest of her life. And yet she was the most blessed of all women. So Jesus said, you know, blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness sake. And that certainly fits Mary. And therefore, yes, that means that suffering is not necessarily a bad thing, even though it's hard for us to endure. And we as 21st century Christians aren't used to suffering for the faith. Right. That's one of the, the aspects of Christendom that has, has uh, really spoiled us. Our forebears might have said, wow, look, we've arrived. Look how good we can make it for our children. But pampered children of the 50s and 60s rebelled against the good stuff, oftentimes that their parents thought they were giving them. So it just goes to show that if you're going to understand your times or past times, you've got to do it through the lens of scripture. Right. The only standard we really have that, that uh, transcends us and that has the blessing of God. You know, I had a guest previously who was talking and made reference to the Tuskegee experiment that happened in the early part of the 1900s, where the former slaves who were now sharecroppers were part of 
um, an experiment to see how syphilis would affect the body if it went untreated. And they took advantage, I would say, of black doctors and nurses who believed what was going to be done to help these men in six months if they just did something. And as it turned out, this thing went on for decades. And as I was watching a depiction of it and then followed through with some documentaries that had been put together, it dawned on me that those doctors and nurses, once they found out what was true, could be considered between a rock and a hard place. They knew that these men weren't going to be treated. They came to terms with the fact that they had been lied to, but they didn't feel that they could leave and abandon them. So depending on how you're going to look back on this person or these people, you could say they were wicked, 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 or you could say they realized they were in a situation that they couldn't control and they decided caring for people was more important than being a whistleblower. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that were I in that situation, that would be one of those things where it would cause me to really look at the scripture and ask God, what would you have me do? And just like we don't know everything about everybody, those people could be could have been acting righteously, even though we know that they were part of a system that was corrupt. And I think that's where humility and grace needs to be factored in on how we judge other people. Yes, and I don't, I don't know the circumstances, but uh, at that story and that evil really came out, and I don't know to what extent that was from just record keeping or what that, whether that was from some of those individuals that that felt it was wrong and felt the story should be told, that it should be that secret should be laid out in the open. That's that's, and that's not an uncommon position for people throughout history, even. Paul made a reference in one of his epistles. He said, those of Caesar's household greet you. He just sort of believes it at that. And there were people actually employed directly by Caesar. And there would have been thousands probably in Caesar's larger household. And some of them might have been slaves and some of them might, might have been freemen. But those of Caesar's household were sending their greetings. So they were obviously Christians. Why would Paul mention that? Perhaps it was to encourage them that, yeah, there's even progress of, of the gospel because it's in Caesar's household. And, and likely there's debate about when that was written, but um, it's very likely that was written when Nero was the emperor and he hadn't begun his intense persecution of Christians. But any faith that was not part of the emperor cult, which was saying the emperor was God, any other faith such as Christianity would have been a dangerous thing to claim. And so obviously there were people within Caesar's own household who were sending through the Apostle Paul their greetings to other Christians. Perhaps it was done somehow through Paul while he was in prison, but it's also possible the gospel, Paul was saying the gospels made progress even before 
I got there. We, we don't really know uh, when these people became Christians or when they were exposed to the gospel. And even in his imprisonment, Paul was able to, to teach and preach to it to a certain extent. Apparently people were freely allowed to come visit him or he had uh, uh, an extensive liberty of, of receiving visitors. Even in the time of the New Testament, there was a recognition that people are in difficult positions and yet they're acknowledging the power of the gospel and they're acknowledging their community of faith with other believers. So that's, that's really remarkable. There's a, there was a, other references. We're not clear of it at the end of, uh, towards the end of Romans, there's a, a reference to those of uh, the households. And one of those names is, is a name that, May was the same name as one of uh, Herod the Great's sons, who was, I believe he was in exile, or he, he was living in Rome at the time. So it's even possible that Herod the Great, who attempted to kill Jesus in, in the slaughter of the innocents, that uh, his son might have been a Christian or people in his household. So this is how things you know work. We're frustrated by evil. We just want to see evil destroyed. And yet God has bigger plans that we don't understand. There's a, there was an incident in Samaria. Jesus, remember, had preached in Samaria to the woman at the well, and then he was received and, and, and people listened to him for some time in Samaria. And then he returned there later and they basically said, we don't want you here. The officials apparently just said, no, you're out. Don't come into our town. And the disciples said, shall we call down fire from heaven? In other words, like Elijah and, and the you know, death on the, the prophets of Baal or something. Shall, shall we just destroy this, this city because it, it re- refused you? And uh, Jesus wouldn't let them do that. And, and then he used the examples of, of wheat and tares. What what does that mean? I don't think he was referring to uh, eschatology and and looking far into the future. I think the fact that he said they're 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 if you pull up the tares, you're going to damage wheat as well. I think he was probably referring to the fact that even from evil people, perhaps Herod's household, perhaps Caesar's household, there comes people of faith. We can all point to people in our not-too-distant past, family members from whom we descended that were were not believers. And yet from them came some wheat. And so if you have this optimistic view of the future, that many of the people who we can identify as tares in God's fields are in fact going to produce another generation that will be wheat and that will be fellow believers, and that the kingdom will grow. So if we try to destroy all evil and all evil men, as and then we all get that urge somehow, if just God could just strike this person dead or that person dead, but but they may be the, the, the parent or the grandparent or the great-grandparent of someone who does great service to the kingdom of God. So we let God be in charge, and we don't we can't address all forms of evil ourselves. We, we look for it in our lives. There's another reference to Paul where he says uh, in the King James, it says, avoid the appearance of evil. That word there, appearance of evil means avoid meant the, 
curing of evil. The, in other words, uh, the manifestations of evil. He, so he, you're saying is you're going to encounter evil. Just keep your eye out for it. He didn't say attack all evil, destroy all evil. He said, just watch out for it. It's coming your way. So we have to see what position has God give us. Can we address evil around us? Do we have the power? Do we have the authority? Do we even have the right to address certain forms of, of evil? Or do we just address the evil that is in our hearts and in which we encounter in our life? And we try to expand that area of righteousness in ourselves, in our families, in our sphere of influence. You know, we were talking about uh, people who are attacking the, the sins of the past and feeling self-righteous about it. I think we we can sometimes uh, do that by thinking, oh, I'll go find some evil over there and I'll protest against that evil. And they're always attacking some other evil rather than addressing the need for righteousness where they can actually have an influence, righteousness. When you were talking about Caesar's household, you know, I live in Silicon Valley. Lots of people here work for big tech and lots of people nowadays are part of the medical industrial complex. Well, if we try to slash the institution and forget that we can have an influence on the people who are parts of those institutions. And really, the strength of a person's testimony is, I was this way, and now I'm not. And the difference is the Holy Spirit. And instead of having to solve the problem of big tech censorship or mandates coming from all sorts of places, if we influence the people we come in contact with and God changes them, they'll know much better than we how to change the system, much the same way that Saul was a Pharisee who knew an awful lot about being a Pharisee and knew the conflicts Pharisees had with the Sadducees. And when he became a Christian, his effectiveness had everything to do with his past. So, since God foreordains what comes to pass, what we should be busy about is being a witness to the power of the gospel, not so much that we're going to go out there with knives and swords and slay those dragons. There are enough dragons that every, all of us have, but mostly they exist within us and are very close to home. Right. It's easy to, to talk about praying for God's judgment on people. And yet, if you look at it a different way, maybe pray that God uses that person's talents ultimately in the in the service of, of the kingdom. And that might happen whether that person is ever converted or not, because their talents, their invention may end up being used by the kingdom of God for something very productive. There's a lot of very, very talented people in this world. And when you live in evil times, a lot of that talent is going to be used for evil purposes. But someday that talent and that or that invention may be used for great things in the kingdom of God, and we should pray for that. It's easy to be very negative about what's happening. The good thing about what's, what's happening in our, in our culture, in our lifetimes, as scary as it is, is things are changing and things need to change. A lot of times people bemoan social media. They bemoan Bill Gates, you know, Microsoft or whatever. But there's part of me that 
can recognize that evil people do evil things. But in many ways, I've been able to be in touch with people who I consider close colleagues in the kingdom of God, who I probably would never meet in person. And a lot of the teaching that I do online with women going through a number of your dad's books, most of these people I've never met, but for social media and the internet and whoever wants to claim credit for the internet. So I think what you're saying is important for us to remember that God can use good people. God can use bad people. God can use gifted people. God can use people who aren't so gifted that if we just trust the fact that he's got this, and Psalm 2 makes it very clear that he does, that probably could save ourselves a lot of anxiety. I think so. And uh, we can only do what, what we can do. And we, we need to look carefully at what we can, in fact, do. But God is, you know, the parable of the talents, God has given people varying talents. He's giving them resources, abilities. How can we use that to further God's kingdom? That's what we should be asking us. We we can't solve all the issues that need to be addressed, and that's not our job. We don't push the kingdom forward. We're only faithful to it, and God wants us to be faithful in with the resources that, that we have available and the influences that we have available. So the question is not how much we do for the kingdom. It's whether we're faithful in what we're given. Well, I think that's a good way to sum all this discussion up. And uh, I thank you, Mark, for offering insight. And I'm hoping that those who listen, if you find yourself what seems to be between a rock and a hard place, that you continue to be students of scripture so that you can determine what God would have you do. Listeners, as always, if you would like to comment on this discussion or past ones or even make suggestions for the future, you can reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.